This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Australian Museum. I'd like to start by first acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose land we meet upon today. I'd like to pay my respects to elders both past and present and extend that respect to all of you who have joined us for this important lecture and following conversation today. We're lucky enough to be joined by Bruce Pascoe, a Yuan, Bunurong and Tasmanian writer who has brought us some great books, including Fogger Docks, Convincing Ground and Bloke, to name a few. But it's his most recent work, Dark Emu, Black Seeds, Agriculture or Accident, that has brought us here today. Dark Emu questions the popular perception of Aboriginal people living a hunter-gatherer lifestyle in pre-colonised Australia. The book illustrates the vast amount of evidence in both colonial records, universities and museums, including this one, that illustrate first Australians as having complex systems of land maintenance right across the continent including plant domestication, sowing, harvesting, irrigating and storing, behaviours inconsistent with the hunter-gatherer assessment. Importantly, today we'll be considering the underlying agendas that have shaped the narrative regarding Australia's 60,000 years of history and why it's important to have these discussions and their potential to help us with contemporary social and environmental issues. Today we are also joined by a special guest, Dr Michael Westaway, archaeologist, biological anthropologist and senior research fellow at Griffith University in Brisbane, whose research from both Aboriginal sites and with Australia's megafauna also supports those arguments brought forward in Dark Emu. He'll discuss some of this research with us today. In regards to the structure, Approximately the first hour we'll hear from both Bruce and Michael and have time to take questions from the audience. Following this, we invite you to view some of these very special objects that we've brought out from our collections today. Um, these have never before been seen by the public. And Bruce will also be signing copies of Dark Emu if you brought yours along. But if you didn't bring yours along, we're selling them in our museum store just through the atrium. Following the talk, we will have uh, drinks available, uh, a drink available for each ticket holder and some food just outside here in Gadigarang. And we also invite you to view our Indigenous exhibitions today. There are a few staff. Um, we'll either have lanyards or name badges on and feel free to come down, have conversations with us or ask us any questions. Okay, thank you. Ankh? I'd also like to uh, acknowledge uh, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the land itself um, where we're gathered today and um, uh, all the people in the audience um, for coming along on a Sunday uh, to talk about uh, Australia. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the young Aboriginal people here from the, not just the museum staff but those who have just come along. Um, it's so heartening uh, to see you here. Um, and I'd, I'd like to thank Alison, who um, Laura and I saw on a very special day that I'll talk to you about a bit later on, who was very generous with her time and her um, uh, 
her interaction with us on that day. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge um, Michael. Um, Michael's engaged in some work that you'll all be hearing about and you'll be flabbergasted um, by that work and you'll be amazed at how significant it is. Uh, all the work that Michael will talk to you about today is also incredibly interesting and incredibly important for this country, but what's coming um, is just, it'll change your whole attitude to the life of humans on Earth. And um, um, I'm, I'm very uh, proud to have been party to um, a conversation with Laura and Michael um, earlier today. It, you know, Malcolm Turnbull was right. Um, it is a very exciting time to be an Australian. Um, <laughs> it's true um, because over the next five years um, some things are going to be revealed which will make us all love our country so much more and will be so much more knowledgeable about our country. And um, it will be the end of going overseas and bragging about Vegemite. The, um, the image on the screen is Mount Gungara, and that's the, the travel of the Rainbow Serpent as the Rainbow Serpent travels from Cape York uh, down through New South Wales, um, across uh, the Alps, and gets to Mount Gungara. And these are the eggs of the Rainbow Serpent. The, the serpent then moves on um, through uh, South Australia, Western Australia, and the serpent's head rests on Rottnest Island. This is not just a cute story about a snake uh, making the land. Uh, it explains the whole of life in Australia. And we're working on that um, songline and on that story um, so that we can uh, tell it as a coherent whole to Australia because it is a spiritual story. Um, it's a story of the land, but it is so significant for all of us, all of us Australians here, um, to know that story because it, it, it is, is a story that explains life. When I first started writing essays about some aberrant information that I found, um, I was taken aside by some professors of uh, history, anthropology and archaeology and I was told not to use the word Aboriginal and the word agriculture in the same sentence, certainly not side by side, uh, because it didn't happen, Bruce. It didn't happen. Um, and it was a fortunate day because it made me um, even more determined. I am my grandmother's grandson, um, it made me more determined to get to the bottom of these aberrant pieces of information which were indicating that Aboriginal people were harvesting grains. And leaving that meeting, I went to the first second-hand bookshop I could find in Canberra. I walked to the back of the, the shop because all Australian history is at the back of the shop, uh, British history is at the front of the shop. And um, 
I've purchased the first explorer's journal I could find there, and it was uh, Thomas Mitchell's journals in, uh, Journeys into Tropical Australia. Around about page 80, I, I read these lines. I now rode through nine miles of stooped grain. Stooped grain. I didn't need any more information. Here's the first European into that country on the Barwon River and he's riding through stooped grain. His fellow explorers, so-called explorers, um, who were exploring, discovering a country where people are stooking grain, um, they said it looked like an English field of harvest. And I thought, why? Why am I not allowed to talk about Aboriginal agriculture? I then got home to Mallacoota, um, where the internet is incredibly dodgy, and I googled Aboriginal grain harvests. The first 32 uh, items that came up were all about uh, Australian wheat harvests of the last 30 or 40 years, and um, about item 33 was an essay by Bill Gamage. Um, item 34 was this map. Norman Tyndale's Australian, uh, an American archaeologist who came out here um, and was interested in Aboriginal people, which made him the laughing stock of his um, Australian peers because um, for the attitude which I can explain by when I went to um, university, I wanted to study Australian history and the history department at Melbourne University, the best university in the country, so they say, uh, they said, look, we don't teach Australian history because nothing happened. Um, and this happened, and it was an American who discovered it. Tyndale looked at all the references uh, that early pioneers, early uh, settlers, I'm trying to not use those words, but they do crop up in you know, your brain. Um, all the references those people made to grain harvests by Aboriginal people, and they are the solid black line that goes through the very centre of Australia. It represents six times, five times the size of the current Australian wheat belt, which you can see the dotted line in the southwest corner, the dotted line in the southeast corner. Aboriginal people were growing grain and harvesting grain in sand. These plants are going to be incredibly important to us as a nation. We'll be eating uh, bread with, this, uh, with these grains in them, uh, the flour from those grains rather, over the next five years. They're incredibly important because they're perennial plants. You don't have to plough the land once you have your crop established, as the Aboriginal people had established it. And the, the root mass is so large that it sequesters an incredible amount of carbon. Farmers are going to be paid in Australia to grow these plants simply because of their carbon sequestration. And we know nothing about them. Sir Thomas Mitchell's plant, we believe, is what is now called Mitchell grass, uh, the, ones, the, the one he rode through. When Charles Sturt was saved from certain death by Aboriginal people who gave him water and fed him bread, which he said was the sweetest and lightest cake he'd ever eaten, we don't know what that plant is. We've got 100 cooking shows in Australia at the moment. Not one of them has ever mentioned that plant 
We just don't know what it is. I, I think I know what it is. But how come in a, in, a in a country with departments of agriculture and 100 universities and 100 agriculture departments in those universities that no one has inquired about that plant? It's astounding uh, what our education will do to us. I'm an Aboriginal man and I grew up believing what I was taught because none of my teachers were axe murderers. They were teaching me the best way they thought and they taught me that Aboriginal people just moved aside when Europeans arrived and went into the missions, as meekly as that. And I was ashamed of my people. It was terrible to think that the people had walked away from the land. They didn't talk to us about the massacres. They didn't even talk to us about the smallpox. They didn't talk to us about the defiance of our people, how successful their resistance was to European invasion. We didn't learn any of that. Um, so now that we are having this conversation in Australia, it is a magnificent time because within the story of Aboriginal resistance, within the story of Aboriginal achievement, there is the story of the country that, to which we all belong, all of us here in this room. None of us are going away. Black people aren't going to go away. Non-Aboriginal people aren't going to go away. We have to get on with each other because we, what we do over the next decade will decide the future of the country. It's as simple as that. Michael Westerway's work, which will be revealed in the next few years, will be astounding, as I said before, and will help us make up our mind what we are going to do about this wonderful place. <coughs> up around Lake Mungo, um, there's a grass that grows in sand. It requires only the available moisture that falls in that region, which is very little. It grows in pure sand, a rich sand, but a pure sand. And that grain has never been examined by science. And a Japanese artist who doesn't speak English came to Mildura, you know, put all those facts together and think about it. Japanese artist doesn't speak English, goes to Mildura. Sounds like a joke about an Irishman, but... <laughs> anyway, he, he turns up in Mildura and discovers the Aboriginal people there and starts talking to the old women there in Japanese. Um, but they, they have a relationship and he's curious about um, the life, their life now and their li the life of their grandmothers and gra uh, mothers before. And they start talking to him about baking and bread. And he got fascinated by that. And so with their children and grandchildren, they harvested these grains here uh, from Panicum decompositum and we turned it into flour. And, you know, it astounds me that Norman Tyndale, the American archaeologist, anthropologist, was laughed out of the country for suggesting that Aboriginal people um, made the first ground-edged axe in the world. That was in the 70s. Last year, 
in Western Australia, we found the first ground-edged axe in the world, 48, 49,000 years old. Tyndale was right, the American. We laughed him out of the country. And Yakoshi, the Japanese guy, he's right too, because this stuff makes bread. Never before examined um, by Australians. There's a huge gap in our scholarship in this country and we can redress it. And I've spoken to some people today who are going to redress it. Cornflake boxes and silver foil and in the, in the heart of that little oven on the sands of Lake Mungo is the bread. We, could sm we were in a, um, underneath an awning having a bit of a yarn up with you know, the scientists involved in Lake Mungo because it was talking about Lady Mungo at the same time as this bread was baking and we could all smell it. It was beautiful. It'll, it'll be the heart of your kitchen one of these days and it won't take very long. There's the bread that came out of those ovens. Um, it wasn't 100% um, panicum uh, and it did have a, a sourdough starter as the ferment, um, but we know that Aboriginal people used ferments to rise the bread. We just don't know what that ferment was or what they were. Um, 100 cooking shows, no one knows what that ferment was. We think it's honey and maybe it was banksia flour, but in that country there, I think it has to be honey. Anyway, the future of Australian diet uh, Australian cuisine um, was uh, taught to us by a man from Japan. Bill Gamage um, was sent this photograph by uh, an art dealer in uh, Sydney and it uh, was by Von Gerard, 1841. In the back left-hand corner um, of this very, very early painting is a field of Murnong. Microceros lanceolata. Um, we know next to nothing about Microceros lanceolata. When Mitchell, the same man, he travelled a bit, when he was in uh, the Western District of Victoria, what he called Australia Felix, what he said was just waiting for the hand of civilised man to turn the soil, he noticed that from where he stood at Garryward or the Grampians to the South Australian border, it was yellow with Murnong flowers. It wasn't just Murnong flowers, there was a, a base of moss below them and there were orchids and uh, bulbine lilies in amongst them. But they were all tubers, they were all harvested by our people. George Augustus Robinson um, had to prevent settlers from shooting those women when they went out to harvest uh, the fields that they'd been harvesting for, who knows, 12,000 years, 15,000 years, 30,000 years, we don't know. We do have 100 cooking shows in this country, but we don't know the answer to that question yet. Perhaps we might in the future. These are important questions. The devotion of labour to those uh, volcanic soils of the Western District of Victoria, uh, the best soil in the country, that was virtually treeless, read Bill Gamage, virtually treeless and was devoted um, to these tubers. And we don't know anything about them. In, um, in my country, Ewan country at the moment, and in um, uh, 
Gundismara country. Um, my son is growing Moonong in Yuan country. Um, my wife and I are growing Moonong. Uh, some of the other brothers and sisters are growing Moonong or Microceris lanceolata. So there is some progress being made, but uh, Jonathan Jones made some enormous uh, discoveries in this museum amongst a pile of stone that was virtually unlabeled apart from a couple. And this one is called um, Stone Artifact Bogan River Pick. Now most of those other stones were unlabeled, but Jonathan wanted to know what they were because he'd, uh, you know, he'd read Dark Emu and he wanted to find out about this idea of agriculture. And this photograph is one of the most important photographs in Australia. Not the, service, not the surfers at Bondi, which turns up every year on the cover of a glossy magazine somewhere. This humble little photograph, because that stone is that big and it's too heavy to use, above, sorry, to use above the waist for any period of time. The handle for it was attached at right angles and you can see the wasting on that uh, stone that Aboriginal people had chipped in to take the binding which um, bound the handle to that stone. The only possible way to use that tool was between the legs in a pendulum action. The surface of the stone's point had not been used on stone, had it not been used on wood, it had only been used on soil. What for? An early form of croquet? <laughs> the people were turning the soil over for a purpose. And down in the Western District, uh, our people, without any archaeological support at all, uh, uh, examining Gilgais, what the old people call Gilgais, which are, uh, are gardens that have been built into the, uh, the, the stone of uh, the volcanic area of Western Victoria. And the, the soil has been enhanced. Each of the, the soils is different um, and it has been enhanced, some, some of them have been enhanced with calcium possibly from bone or burnt bone, we don't know. But something very strange happened there and is possibly associated with these. Such is the state of our science, we don't know. 220 years later, we don't know what was going on there. And this man here uh, was wondering about how he was going to go forward with some of his research and I said to him, Michael, don't be a bloody dill. You know, people are going to be falling over you um, one of these days because Australia is changing its mind. We've had the gods of Wheat Street. We've had Redfern now. We've had First Australians. We've had a whole... We've had Stan Grant on mainstream TV. Things are changing. This couldn't have happened ten years ago. It wouldn't have happened. Um, first Footprints. You know, these things couldn't have happened a decade ago. They are happening now because Australia seems to want to change its mind. But 30 years ago, Australia wanted to change its mind about the Republic and then quickly forgot all about it. So we cannot afford to forget it now. 
After I'd seen the photographs that Jonathan had sent me, I started wandering around regional museums. I found this stone in Dalesford, and it was called Unusual Stone. <laughs> it is indeed unusual because, once again, it's got marks where bindings had been applied at right angles to the stone and there are about six of those stones in that museum and I've seen others since. When we start to look, when we start to examine our country, when we start to go back through the collections of our museums, we're going to come up with some astounding bits of information. That photograph, beautifully taken, you'll have to admit, from my mobile phone. Uh, so explicit, isn't it? You don't know what it is? Well, it's part of a grinding stone, some of which is down here in the plastic bags at the front, which um, I, I saw with Laura and I saw with Alison um, last year. Um, it's part of a, a grinding dish which is between 32 and 36,000 years old. And uh, Judith Field and Richard Fulliger have examined that stone to look at the starch which is impressed into the interstices of how many seasons are there in interstices um, in that stone and um, they find that the starch there is incredibly old and is probably uh, the oldest uh, form of seed grinding in the world. So the woman who did that work and who thought it up, who d decided to get a handful of seed and grind it into a powder and then thought what she's going to do with a white powder. She thinks, I think I'll put some water with that. I think I'll heat it up. And she made bread before anyone else on earth. You know, the, the chemical processes, the intellectual might of that woman is incredible. She should be famous in Australia. Here's my sister. Really emotional day for us to be in the presence of that stone, that really, really old stone. Um, and I took that photograph because I wanted to remember it. I wanted to know exactly what it was like because I, I knew that I was in the presence of something so important to the world not just Australia, if this is the oldest bread-making equipment in the world, then it's world history. It's the start of people changing the whole of their science, the whole of the, their nutrition, the whole of the pattern of their life. And we will find out very soon that those people were establishing themselves in a social system uh, which was way, way in advance of anywhere else on earth. And we ought to be proud of that. You know, we ought to, when we go overseas, instead of talking about Donald Bradman, who no one else knows anything about, apart from the Indians, um, we ought to go over there and say, look, yeah, I'm, uh, that's my passport, I'm Australian, it's got the Koori flag on it, because it has now. It's supposed to be something to do with computers, but I call it the Koori flag on the front of the passport. And I say, yeah, there's the Koori flag. 
and I come from the country that invented bread. Hello, Bob. I didn't see you there, hey? This is one of the hardest working people in Australia right there. I owe you a lot, sis. There's some more stones that we saw that day, you know? Just acres and acres of stone and um, we're thinking, you know, this treasure trove of Australian life, um, all Australians need to see it. And we need to see it because of this little plant here. This is a, you know, nothing that Aboriginal people ever did came without a story. It didn't come with a monograph, a scientific monograph on protein or nutrition. It came with a story. On the right, you've got the grandmother. In the middle, you've got the mother. On the left, you've got the child. And poor old mum in the middle there, she's been attacked by a swamp rat in our garden at uh, Gypsy Point. You can see the tooth mark there. We can tell exactly what kind of animal made those marks because of that, uh, the pattern. That swamp rat had to walk past strawberries to attack that plant. Why? Why is the rat so keen? Because the nutrition level of that Murnong, Microceros lanceolata, is so high and its um, kindness to your gut, its benefit to your whole digestive system is so important that the rat knew it had to eat it. And we will all be eating this in three or four years. You'll be able to buy it at the greengrocer or Coles if you have to go to Coles. Um, and we'll be eating these things. And I hope when they come on the market, they're not called yam, they're called Murnong. If they're sold in Western Victoria, they're called Murnong. If they're sold on the south coast of New South Wales, they're called Narama. You know, the, the local name, because if they come out of south coast, they're Narama. If they come off the volcanic plains of Western Victoria, they're Murnong. And that we will be celebrating this and we'll be benefiting from it because uh, the sugar in it is not a sugar at all, it's fructans. And it's very, very good for you. There's an old Sheila and me. That's Beth Gott. There was virtually no research done on Murnong. There was one paper by a guy called Frankel and all the rest of them were done by that lady. Without Beth Gott, 97 years old, still working at Monash University, still um, She's got a garden of mern on there and other grasses and things which she still works at. And um, she's a fabulous Australian. She's not very famous, but she's a fabulous Australian. This was my son's Murnong garden um, a number of years ago, uh, 2013, I think, 15. Um, but now that Murnong is so big that all the leaves have come together like that. Um, he had to rotary hoe out um, uh, cooch grass um, to plant that. And of course the cooch grass just kept on coming up through the straw. But now that the leaves of the Murnong are, are crossing each other like that, there, is no, there are no more weeds. And this is how the old people, because you can see the moss on the right hand side next to the pumpkin, um, 
The, the moss on the right-hand side is critical to how this plant grows. This is how the old people had it. And um, we're trying to reinvent the wheel of Aboriginal agriculture now. Um, we'll all be eating these things. I just hope that we'll remember uh, where they came from. These are the Brewarina fish traps. Um, in the future, in Australia, people will buy their uh, mothers and their wives and their children um, tickets, plane tickets, to fly to Brewarina to see these magnificent structures. Some scientists say they're the oldest human construction on Earth. And yet no one knows they're there. When the Europeans first arrived, they broke through the, the fish traps um, so they could take their paddle steamers up upstream. And further upstream, again, they dammed it. Um, and the fish in the hand of the young lad um, on the, your left-hand side there um, no longer exists because of that dam, because that fish bred up in the upper reaches of that river, the Darling River, and once the dam was in place, it could not reach its breeding grounds, disappeared within a year. Very sad, beautiful fish. Um, and indicative of how careless we are with our earth, how we know so much and yet we know so little and sometimes care less. This um, image here I take around to universities um, in, around the world and um, in Australia and I ask people to guess what continent it comes from. No one guesses Australia, uh, but that's actually Cape York. The whole of that stream was dammed uh, with stakes and mud and foliage. The, the drums are made of paper bark. Um, it's on a, a bench made of uh, jungle cane. And the whole of the river's water has to go through those two tubes and all the fish come through it as well. Um, it's a fishing machine. It's a commercial fishing machine. And there's another wonderful example of that fishing machine uh, which I describe in Dark Emu, which is only $35 and it's got real photos in it. Um, and you could buy it outside apparently. Uh, but there's a, another example there of a, a bloke on the Murray River who his um, people had dammed the river at that point, um, allowed water to go through it, and he had inserted a noose into one of the apertures and attached a really um, uh, bendy green stick to it with a rope on it which was attached to the noose and the noose was attached to the bottom of the river with a peg and when a fish rang through the noose it got caught around the gills, released the peg, the fish was flung out of the river and landed beside uh, the man on the, on the bank that he had, his people had constructed and he, and I say in the book, insouciantly places the fish in the basket because Kirby the first European to, to witness this is watching from the bank and that man is insouciant. Some of my Aboriginal brothers um, say to me, why do you use a word like insouciant? I say, because I bloody can. And that's what that man was. Our people were language experts. We can use any word we like. We learnt English within weeks of meeting the first European. We learnt to sing Christian hymns with a Scottish accent because we wanted to be exact. 
Um, so we're the language experts. I'll say that man was insouciant. And he, um, the, the Kirby, in witnessing that, said, when I was sailing out to Australia, I'd learnt that Aboriginal people were amongst the laziest people on earth. And watching a man fishing in that way proved to me that what I'd heard was right. <laughs> what he'd witnessed was engineering, commercial engineering, and yet he called it laziness. That's how we twist our minds to suit our prejudice. Aboriginal people were supposed to live under a piece of bark propped up by a stick. And this is taken from part of the country where some of my family live. Um, a magnificent structure accommodates 40 people. This is an Australian house. This is an Australian grave. We heard on the radio when we were driving around um, someone talking about gardens and how the Europeans had invented gardening and how the English country garden was supposed to be you know, the, the pinnacle of excellence in this regard. And these people, the first people on earth to ritually bury the dead, um, had clipped all the land around, painted the trees and made absolutely serene repose for their dead. Sorry. Um, this is a, a house that was revealed at Tirundurra in Victoria in 2009 after the fires. Uh, there are hundreds of these um, house sites. Uh, once again, uh, the Victorian Archaeological Survey uh, when they visited that site uh, in the 80s, um, couldn't decide whether they were of human construction or not. Um, so Heather Bilth, um, uh, archaeologist, um, decided that the only way to prove that the Lake Conda fishing complex and these houses were of human um, provenance uh, weighed every stone and mathematically proved that they could not have been built by any other way than by human hand. There was a wonderful bit of science, wonderful bit of archaeology, and now she can't get a job. This happens a lot. I have another great friend of mine, I'm not going to mention her name, another archaeologist, she's a wonderful woman, and because of her insistence on the respect and the protection of um, a site up on the Murray River, um, she's now offside with um, her university colleagues, can't get a job. Some of the work she's done, and uh, she did um, Brawarana early days, very early days, um, is magnificent. And we don't, you know, such is our inability to embrace the true history of the country that we ostracise someone like that. No one had talked to Bill Gamage when he first started talking about what he was talking about. His fellow university professor stopped um, talking to him. Um, Michael came along with a copy of Rupert Gerritsen's book on the first agriculture in Australia and had to be published in London. And Rupert couldn't get a job. And mind you, he did um, blow up a bomb at the American Embassy 
in Perth during the, sec during the Vietnam War. You know, maybe that had something to do with their reluctance to hire the man, but gee, have a sense of humour. Um, <laughs> anyway, poor old Rupert uh, couldn't get a job either because he was at the absolute forefront of Australian archaeology. It just wasn't recognised that's where he was. Another one of the cemeteries. Um, these are places of repose. This is talking about civilisation. Some of the other housing, um, low doorways, different style altogether to suit the country in which it was made. And these, these houses are made in a, a warmer, a mild climate, but a warmer climate with a very big um, doorway, an aperture, um, to allow the breeze. But have a look at the span of that one on, the, on your right-hand side there. Um, you know, that is a, a serious structure. The ones in the Western District of Victoria made out of stone with um, boughs as uh, uh, rafters and ribs covered in sods of soil. One of the Europeans who first um, negotiated purchase of the land, so-called, he went into one of those houses and there were 50 Aboriginal people there waiting to meet him. It's a big structure. It's a town hall. It's a bigger building than anything um, in the town that I live in at the moment. There you go, there's Dark Emu. Um, but so there's so much fascinating stuff um, going to come up um, because we're going to need it. Not just because, you know, you have, don't have to be kind to Aboriginal people. You'll embrace this information because we're in a, a drying continent and we're going to need to find a way of feeding people and conserving water in the country and looking after the country. And I hope that's where it leads. I hope we say we are here for Mother Earth. We are here for Da. We are here for Um We will do nothing that will damage the earth. And this is not, you know, touchy-feely, left-wing, greeny um, sentiment. If we do, if we adopt that and say we will not harm the earth, it's the absolute intellectual rigour. You can't get tougher than that intellectually. You can't get harder-nosed than to say, I will not damage the earth. It's the top of the economy, it's the top of science, and we have to do it, and that's what our old people did. They worked out a system where everybody got fed, everybody got a house, everybody took part in the culture, and when they got old, everybody was looked after by the young. Those old people. Where else on earth did a people decide that you Ewan people, you're all down the south coast, you look after that country down there. You Gunditsch Murray, you go over there and you look after that west coast country over there. You Yongyu, you're up there, you look after that and all those, all the crocodile, all the, that salt water, you look after that and you um, we're Adjuri. You know, you go in, you're in that country there, the other side of those mountains, and you Gadigal people, you're looking after this country here, and you stay there, 
and you stay there and you stay there for 80,000 years. Now, who cares how long a people have been in place? Because our people say we've always been here anyway. Um, but we know now that the excavation of a midden at Warrnambool uh, is between 60 to 80,000 years of age, 10,000 years before out of Africa. How did they get here? Just lost, I suppose. Um, but, you know, I, I, I spoke to the archaeologists involved in that excavation and I said, isn't it great that it's 60,000 years? And they said, Bruce, 60,000 years be buggered. It's 80,000 years or I'm a chook. And, um, you know, I believe they're not a chook. And um, so 80,000 years is serious. Singh, when he excavated at uh, Lake George near Canberra, he was convinced that humans were burning there 120,000 years ago. Once again, people were astounded. Richard Fulliger, who, had, who did work on those stones, um, did an examination of um, some archaeological material, came up with a, an age of 120,000 years that's been reinvestigated. But people laughed at him and laughed at him maliciously. They laughed at Singh, they laughed at uh, Tyndale, um, because what is this reticence in this country about Aboriginal achievement? Why do we resist it with such enormous vigour? Why do we refuse to give oxygen to people with a different opinion? Because we still want to lie about how we came by this land. Because terra nullius was all about, well, they didn't do anything with the land. So therefore, according to the doctrine of discovery, which Pope somebody rather the third or fifth or something said in 1534 or thereabouts, um, the doctrine of discovery said it, if a European ventures to sea and finds a land, he is compelled to take that land in order to bring the light to those people. That's the doctrine of discovery. It is the, it is the very basis of colonial law, the absolute basis of it. All of these things we have to examine and we have to open our hearts a bit and I think we can do it together. I think we can do it together because it is so exciting and it means so much to us and I look forward uh, to those days and I look forward to listening to Michael speak because um, in the very near future this man's going to be famous. <laughs> More famous than Sir Donald Bradman and I'm serious. Thank you very much. Thanks, uh, Bruce. Um, I'm not sure about everything you said about me, but it's very kind. And uh, uh, you did mention quite a few colleagues that have fallen the wayside that have worked closely with your ideas, but um, I've actually been very inspired by Bruce's book. Um, it's, a, it's an important contribution, I think, to the intellectual debate in Australia, and he's raised many important questions uh, that 
a number of archaeologists have raised in the past. Um, he mentioned a chap called Gerritsen, who sadly passed away in 2013. Gerritsen wrote a very important book uh, on uh, Aboriginal agriculture and discussed uh, in enormous detail uh, the ethnographic record and discussed it with a focus on two or three different regions. Um, now, Gerritsen was... Um, the book was reviewed uh, by other archaeologists who uh, dismissed it and suggested, no, this is intensification of, agri of, um, of resource exploitation. It's not necessary food production. Uh, and it was unfortunate because Gerritsen, I think, had struck on a very important uh, question in Australian archaeology that wasn't really explored in any significant way. He documented landscapes where there was evidence for food production, there was evidence for sedentism, people living in, in village sites. Uh, and it's, it's recorded in exhaustive detail. And if you really wanted to sink your teeth into Gerritsen's uh, volume, I'd, I'd recommend having a look at it. Um, unfortunately, uh, archaeology in Australia, I don't think, has developed the methodology to investigate sites like this. The sites that uh, I've had the great fortune of looking at in some parts of the country uh, are more reminiscent of sites that you would find in um, Southwest Asia or the Levant, uh, pre-Pottery Neolithic sites. Um, the sorts of landscapes that I think that are still yet to ex be explored in this country do exist and they will provide, if they're investigated through a new methodology, I think a, a different interpretation of the Aboriginal past um, and they'll provide important insights into things like food production, understanding of sedentism. Um, in Australian archaeology, and I was chatting to a colleague earlier uh, about the methodology in Australian archaeology is often called um, telephone booth archaeology. They excavate in small one square metre pits and provide some information from a site. Uh, I think to investigate the types of sites that uh, have been discussed uh, in, in Bruce's book and also by Gerritsen beforehand, requires an approach more similar to what we see in Near Eastern archaeology, where these structures are excavated in whole. I also think that um, techniques uh, that are being developed by archaeobotanists who go through carefully through the sediments uh, using flotation tanks and recovering seeds, uh, that sort of uh, technique is also required to investigate some of these sites that Bruce has talked about. Um, now, some archaeologists have documented these sites. Um, for example, in the corner country of... Uh, Queensland, South Australia, New South Wales and Northern Territory. Um, Ian Davidson from the University of New England, uh, retired, documented a site with 17 villages that unfortunately not published. Uh, stone structures um, representing what looks like a more sedentary approach to um, uh, living on the landscape. Further sites west of uh, Birdsville have been documented and published in 1965 in uh, the old journal Mankind. Similar sort of village sites have been recorded. So there is, a, there is an existing archaeological record, but I don't think it's been explored in a thorough sort of way that, that needs to be undertaken to, to make sense of the meaning of these sites. Um, a new methodology is required to understand what these sites mean. And I think that's why Bruce's essay is such a powerful and important piece. It probably needed to be an Aboriginal person that actually spoke up and said, no, we're not concerned about using terms like villages. We're quite comfortable 
and using a term like a village site. We don't think we're abusing the English language by explaining these as village sites. And in fact, many explorers like Mitchell and Sturt used these terms very happily uh, in the 19th century. Um, I think that we have lots of methods in Australia that can help us understand the sites. Uh, grinding stones such as these are being investigated by colleagues and they're revealing information, the sort of questions that Bruce is asking. Well, what sort of grasses are being processed? Are these Mitchell grasses? Well, when uh, people were grinding stones, uh, grinding grain into these stones years ago, they were grinding into the matrix of that stone the residues of that plant material and animal material uh, that can now be detected through um, uh, high-level microscopy. The residues can be lifted and the species can actually be identified. So these archaeological methods now exist. Because uh, heritage is now firmly owned by Aboriginal people in this country, I think they're now asking questions that archaeologists probably couldn't ask a couple of decades ago. Uh, I've had the, the great um, privilege of being able to investigate the ancestors of many Aboriginal Australians. And it's actually the stories that are told by these ancient people that can help us understand things like, well, how mobile were these populations? We can look at things like isotopes, which are the chemical signatures in bones and teeth that can tell us about mobility and movement. These sort of approaches to understanding the first agriculturalists in uh, the Near East have been operating for decades. But now, I think, Archaeologists and communities are starting to work together to ask these sort of questions. Our museum collections are really quite important too, and the techniques provide new opportunities to ask new questions. That uh, fossil at the end of the table, we uh, were able to date that fossil. It's held at the Australian Museum, collected from near Lake Mungo in the early 1980s, and it revealed a, um, a, an OSL date and a uranium series date of around 31 to 32,000 years ago. Uh, we published that in January or February this year, and it's, it's the latest surviving example of megafauna in the country. Uh, Zyga maturus was thought to have become extinct soon after the arrival of the first, first Australians. And uh, for many years, the dominant hypothesis has been the Blitzkrieg hypothesis, or the rapid overkill, that the megafauna quickly succumbed to these new hunter-gatherers that arrived on the continent. Um, that specimen at the end of the table uh, demonstrates that there was at least 20,000 years of coexistence. It doesn't date the extinction event, it just dates the age of that specimen. We know that there's 20,000 years of coexistence represented by that fossil at the end of the table. Um, the grinding stones have other secrets to tell. Museums are full of collections that have been carefully cared for and now is the time to start reinvestigating these. We were also involved in a publication last year. Uh, it was the first genomic study of the first Australians. Many Aboriginal people, there are nine Aboriginal co-authors on this paper. It was published in Nature. Uh, Science magazine declared it as one of the most important top 10 scientific discoveries of last year. Uh, I was the first co-author on this paper and it demonstrated significant things about the population structure of the first Australians. So the genomes of those Aboriginal people that live and survive today to also tell a very ancient story. And by uh, the uh, bi molecular biologists and bioinformatics specialists that look at the genome can look at changes in history. The DNA provides a story of populations diversifying. It also can tell us when we see much greater diversity in populations. So by using something called the molecular clock, we can estimate that at certain times, populations changed. 
And an important thing to come out of that paper that we published last year showed that populations in Cape York significantly increased around 10,000 years ago. That's probably six or 7,000 years earlier than the archaeological record would tell us. So the, the molecular clock is telling us stuff about Aboriginal populations. Aboriginal populations change with time. And many Aboriginal people are now inspired to start asking these questions of science and using these questions to tell a new history. And I think that's what's so exciting about Bruce Pascoe's book. It is a very bold and challenging thesis that questions what archaeologists have been calling a continent of hunter-gatherers now for some 60 years. Uh, Bruce asks some very important questions. He points out an enormous amount of historical data suggesting, no, the story is a different one. And I think now we're on the cusp of launching into investigating this new story. Uh, I think that's probably all I need to bang on about at the moment, but I'm very excited by Bruce's research. It's actually inspired me a great deal. I um, was reading his book before I went out into the field earlier this year, and it was changing many of my perceptions. I read the, the original reviews of um, Gerritsen's book, which was quite damning of the idea, but to actually hear it written in a popular way that Bruce has done has actually changed many of my perceptions. And I think there's many other Australian archeologists that are starting look, looking at these questions that Bruce has asked and said, well, can we reinvestigate these landscapes and look at them through a different lens? Um, many of our perceptions, I think, are biased by lots of the classic anthropological studies from Arnhem Land and, and the Western deserts. Those anthropological studies aren't necessarily the right ones to understand some of these other landscapes. Um, so it's an exciting time, I think, for our discipline and uh, all the more exciting, I think, because of Bruce's important contribution. Thank you very much. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.